Okay, if you would take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, and I'll tell you, I can't believe that we are in the third chapter of Philippians already. This is just such an amazing study, such a great book, and it's not that, you know, of course, that it's all that long, but there is so much depth and so much meat in it. So we come to our text today, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 11. We introduced this great text last week, and in each chapter of Philippians, we have seen an advance of greater and greater doctrine, as well as greater and greater application. And we get to chapter 3, and we began chapter 3 with this dichotomy, that is, these two opposite elements. And right there, we see it in verses 1 and 2. And the first verse starts talking about rejoicing. Well, what a wonderful thought. And, and we know that's a massive theme in Philippians, that we need to be rejoicing. But then immediately following that, alluding to it at the end of verse 1, and diving directly into it in verse 2, is this warning. That there are those we must be careful of. That there is a danger that is out there. Beware of the false teachers, the, the wolves, the evil workers. Those who boast in their fleshly accomplishments. That is something, beloved, that we need to immediately notice and watch out for. When we see those that are boastful of what they've accomplished, man, that, that's, if that's not a red sign, that's a strong flashing yellow to watch out. Because that's not who we are to be. There's to be a humility and a kindness and gentleness. And I even had the blessing this evening of speaking with one of our our young people in the church. And we were talking about that need and the need for humility and kindness and gentleness. And these who exalt themselves are contrary to that. Paul shows how shallow and useless those credentials are by explaining his own spiritual pedigree. And that transitions us to our text today and our title, What Could You Consider Loss? What Could You Consider Loss? Now, this uh, uh, text, we we began it last week, but let's take a look at the verses. I'm going to read all the way from verse 1 to 11, because this is one whole unit, and then we'll explain a little bit more as we pick up, uh, recap a couple of the points from last week and dive into the end. Philippians 3 and 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. After Paul's statement of his religious pedigree that we saw back there in in verses 4 through 6, we recognize our first point from last week in verse 7, which we titled, Loss Considered. Loss Considered. And it's immediately evident where our point, Loss Considered, comes from. Paul considered all things that he had gained as loss for Christ's sake. And we talked about how those were accounting terms, gain and loss, and that he was talking about all of the spiritual pedigree that he just focused on. That these were of no value to him. That although he would have room to boast if anyone, but there really was nothing that was that worthy of boasting. And as we talked about that, you can go back and refresh yourselves on those terms. And that took us to our second point. And we went from loss considered to our second point, which I titled losing to gain. Losing to gain in verse 8. And there we saw a deeper point of our, or a deeper understanding of our first point And a deeper understanding of this whole idea of losing to gain. Now we started into this point last week and looked at verse 8. And what was evident was the expanded application of all things. Not just the things that were gain, as we saw in verse 7, but he considers all things lost. And that word considered is an important word because it's actually a passive verb. That means that he was made to consider all things lost. He didn't come to it on his own, but he realized at some point in his life that what he had was loss. That it was of no value whatsoever. It's a perfect tense verb, which means that it started in past time and will continue to go on throughout his life. So he was made aware that these spiritual so-called pedigrees were of no value. When do you think that might have happened? Maybe on the road to Damascus? When the bright light shone around him? And he fell to the ground and and the Lord spoke to him and said, Saul, why do you kick at the goads? Why are you persecuting me? I think that's exactly when this happened. That's what Paul's referring to here. When he was made to consider that not just those things were gained, but that all, or that were lost, but that all things are lost in view of the surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus. That loss was an exchange. It wasn't that it was simply lost for nothing, but rather he exchanged the surpassing greatness and the value of knowing Christ Jesus. We talked about last week that word surpassing value in our Bibles there in verse 8. 
and that it really meant surpassing value was a Greek word that meant beyond anything that can be attained. So anything that can be attained on a worldly perspective, this was beyond that. It was greater. So it was a a really powerful term. And we also talked about that word knowing in verse 8. More than that, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. That it was an experiential knowledge. This wasn't the head knowledge. This wasn't, oh yes, I've heard of Jesus. I've I've heard him spoke about. Um, I've heard people testify about him. No, he knew in his heart. It was that personal understanding of what that meant. And as we recognized that item, he said that because of that, Paul has lost all, and yet he counts it all as rubbish. Count them all as rubbish. That word rubbish being variously translated as garbage, as rotting hay, even as manure. So he doesn't think very highly of that stuff that he's attained. Or of anything in his former life. It was all as of no use. Manure, garbage, waste. And so this is the first part of our second point, losing to gain. This is the losing part. And then at the end of verse 8, he transitions for us into the gain of losing to gain, where he says, there but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So that I may gain Christ. He'd focus on the losing part of losing to gain in verse 8. And now at the end and into verses 9, 10, and 11, he transitions to the gain part of losing to gain. Look at verse 9 again with me. That I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So what is first gained is the righteousness of Christ. Now, what does it mean to be righteous? It means to be holy, doesn't it? It means to be without blame. It means literally to be right. Obviously, that only happens through Christ. Because in and of ourselves, we are not without blame. We are not righteous. We are not holy. Frankly, we are not even right. Isn't that what the Lord said when The man came up to him and said, greeted him as good teacher. And he said, there's no one good but one. By the way, in that acknowledgement, he's saying that, yes, I am good because I've received that comment and I am the one who is good. I am God. So here we recognize that righteousness is only through Christ and that That's what the end of verse 9 indicates, the righteousness which comes through God. Now, as we think of this this righteousness that comes, that we may be found in him, notice again that be found, there's another passive verb. That we may be found. We don't find ourselves. We don't suddenly realize we're lost and get found. No, we are found. Christ does the finding work. He does the saving work of opening our eyes to the truth of who he is. So we see there at the end of 9 that that righteousness 
can't be of ourselves, and so as the verse tells us, it comes through God. Because man has no righteousness in and of himself. It's only from God, and as the verse also says, through Jesus Christ, and of course, through his atoning sacrifice. Let me share with you a couple of verses that you're doubtlessly familiar with from Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 says, For if by the transgression or the sin of one, death reigned through the one, so if Adam sinned and death reigned through Adam's sin, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, which will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So when we receive the abundance and the grace of righteousness, it comes through and only through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1 also directly connecting God and Christ to this gift of righteousness. Paul says this is not his own righteousness from, and, and in, our, in our Bibles it says from the law there in verse 9, but you notice the is in italics, which means it's not part of the original Greek text. And we understand that this is a more broad term when we recognize that that word the is not there. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from law, from any law. From the law of Moses, from the law of Gentiles, from the law of the Romans. There is no law, there is no obedience, there is no life that we can live that is going to make us righteous or holy by our acts in and of itself. It simply can't happen. Why? Because it comes from God. It comes from Christ. No one can be righteous and the law cannot make any right. Galatians 2.21 is another familiar verse to us that I want to uh, share with you as it connects this idea that we've been speaking about. Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. Isn't that the reality of salvation in Christ? If there's another way, if there's another way, if we can be good enough to get to salvation, why did God send his son? This is the major contradiction that we need to bring forward when people say, oh, I'm good enough. You know, I'm, a, I'm pretty much a good person. Maybe you think you are. Maybe compared to your neighbor, maybe compared to the, the bomber in Texas, you're a pretty good person. Not sure that's a standard we really want to place ourselves in front of. But the reality is that that is no standard at all. And if that were the case, why did God send his son to go through all of this? Why did Jesus come to this earth and suffer all of the ridicule, all of the abuse, the horrors of crucifixion? Because if we can be good enough, that was a waste. And that's what we see in Galatians 2.21. If we could get righteousness through the law, Jesus died needlessly. And he did not die needlessly. Isn't it interesting as well, just in context of those verses, Galatians 2.20, which we often read, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's righteousness. There is perfect righteousness. Being crucified with Christ. Living a life not for myself but for Christ. Every decision focused on Jesus and and his desire. Is this choice right? Am I honoring God in the decisions I make? As I consider my interactions with other believers? Is this a life that reflects faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me? That's the question. That's the answer to where righteousness comes from. One, a, a couple more verses just to share with you back in the book of Romans. A very familiar section in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 which takes in one of the verses we often talk about on the Romans road. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21 says, But now apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested. So righteousness has been shown, it has been revealed or manifested, but apart from the law, because it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. You see, the righteousness was not in the law, but the law showed us what righteousness was. We couldn't fulfill righteousness through the sacrifices and through the old covenant law, but it showed us that there was a righteous way. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the connection of God and Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's our verse. And we know it well because it is the case for all of us. Every day we all sin, we all fall short of God's amazing glory. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. It is Christ's life and death, burial and resurrection by which we are justified, by which we are made righteous. Those are similar terms, being righteous and being justified. Because to be justified is to be exonerated, to be seen as not guilty, to go before the judge and him say, no, you're okay. You can move forward. And we know that we stand before the only true, completely righteous judge who must punish sin. So being justified, and that justification is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 of Romans 3, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So he talks about there that he would be the propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness for the sins previously committed, but not just that. For the present time, for our sins today, this is the great news of the gospel. Our sins today and for every day forward are covered by the righteousness of Christ if we accept him. If we recognize and live in obedience to who he is. If we understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and understand that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we must accept and we must live. And as we accept, we receive that righteousness. So righteousness is not only absent before salvation, but it is not earned after salvation. We don't come to it in and of ourselves. Romans 1, 16 and, 7, Romans 1, 16 and 17. On the day when according to my gospel... God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed in our law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to darkness, then you will receive that righteousness of God. Verse 9 in our text back in Philippians 3 says it is a righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The, the end of verse 9 further shows where it says the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Righteousness through Christ in faith. Righteousness through God on the basis of faith. And so righteousness is from Christ through faith and through God on the basis of faith. Did we earn our faith? Did we choose our faith? Not according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For, gra- for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. Not works, lest no one will boast. Our faith, at the time we believe, beloved, God gave us righteousness. It wasn't that first work of obedience that we did when God first opened our eyes to the truth and he said, okay, he's going to walk in my path, so I'm going to give him righteousness. Not at all. When God chose us, when he opened our eyes to Christ, as he gave us faith, he made us righteous. He justified us at that time. We were seen as holy in his sight. So as we gain Christ through faith, we also gain righteousness. This is the first part of gain in losing to gain. The second part is in verse 10 where it says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Again, the experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ, which we previously saw in verse 8, reoccurs here. That I may know Him. We're drawn right back again to the understanding of when Paul came to know Christ. When he was met on the road and struck with that great light and heard the voice from heaven, as did all around him who fell down. Beloved, has this not happened to each of us who know Jesus? Have we not been struck to understand the truth of his word and how wicked we can be in our flesh? The very same knowledge and experiential truth of Christ in our lives, we each have. We can place ourselves right here with Paul that I may know him. And notice it's may know that I may yet continue to know him. As Paul preached the gospel to himself, he said, I need to keep knowing Jesus. It's not like we get it. Because honestly, I can be a little hard-headed. I'll learn something and, and then I forget it. 
I learned people's names, and I'm so thankful for y'all because you're all so faithful, and I see you, and I remember your names. I leave for two months, I'd forget everybody's name. I'd forget my own name if I didn't have a driver's license. And it's worse when it comes to the teachings of the Lord. If we don't keep ourselves in the Word, we're going to totally lose it. It's just going to be gone. That's why we have to keep coming, keep growing, that we may know Christ, that we may continue to experience Him. This experiential knowledge of Christ is specifically identified in verse 10 by three mechanisms. Three mechanisms that are there. The first is knowing Him in the power of His resurrection. Dr. MacArthur notes that Christ's resurrection most graphically demonstrates the extent of his power. Christ's resurrection most graphically demonstrates the extent of his power. As we discussed this on Sunday past, we talked about the resurrection of Christ. We talked about how per our text in Hebrews 13, 20, God the Father raised Jesus the Son. And that's an amazing truth. But it wasn't just that, was it? That wasn't the extent. We also discussed that the Holy Spirit raised the Son, as Romans 8.11 told us. And that was amazing. Both the Father and the Spirit participating together to raise the lifeless body of Jesus Christ, after he had yielded up his spirit, and then that death confirmed by the spear being shoved in his side, and as the blood drains out, separated from the water. And the Father and the Spirit raised him. But not just that, that the Son himself, that Jesus himself raised himself. We saw that in, in several texts, John 2.19, most prominently, we also saw it in Matthew 28. But John 2.19, where Jesus proclaims that he will raise himself. Listen to John 2.19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, which we know is a reference to his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Father, Son, and Spirit. Power of the resurrection, all of the power of the Godhead coming together to bring the resurrection of Christ to life. Incredible for us to understand that. The death, burial, and resurrection, beloved, they're the core of the gospel, aren't they? Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? I preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is, the, it is the truth of the power of Christ's death and resurrection that brings us the true understanding. The, the true power of his resurrection is the seal of redemption that that resurrection provides, as one commentator notes. God is accepting his ransom. He is accepting the atoning work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. And because of that, he is sealing all of us who would believe. That power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it will raise us if we will but believe. So the knowledge of Jesus comes in knowing the power of his resurrection. Secondly, it also comes in verse 10, in knowing the fellowship of his suffering. There's an inseparable fellowship 
with Christ that results from our suffering. When we go through incredibly difficult trials and we know that Jesus has walked this path before us, it brings tremendous comfort. It brings tremendous peace. This is what we studied, although uh, a couple years ago, but back in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. In Hebrews 2.18, our author writes, For since he himself was tempted, since Jesus himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. As we are tempted, as we suffer, Jesus knows that temptation, and he is there with us to walk along with us. Another wonderful reflection of this is in Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When we struggle, when we go through difficulty, when we go through temptation, Jesus knows. He has lived with us. He understands physical suffering far beyond what we will ever know. He understands rejection far beyond what we will ever know. All of the trials and all of the struggles and all of the suffering he has known so that we can know him through the fellowship of his suffering. So we know him through the power of his resurrection. We know him through the fellowship of his suffering. And third, we know him by being conformed to his death. Notice that as we move through this, there's levels of knowing Christ. There is this this level of of knowing him that comes at our initial salvation. That's really what he's speaking about when he talks about the resurrection. Knowing the power of the resurrection. When we know that we are Christ's child, we know that we are saved and that we will be resurrected with him. And that's an amazing knowledge, but that's just the first part of the knowledge. That's just the first understanding. It grows deeper when we start going through sufferings. And as we go through sufferings and we understand and we start to wonder about issues of salvation, we start to question all the things in the world and we see some of the darkness that is around us, it is then that we understand more the power of Christ and know Him in what He went through. And then lastly, we see it in death. The ultimate understanding of the truth of Jesus Christ and knowing Him is that death. Death is a scary thing, even for the believer. Not nearly compared to the unbeliever and having stood by the bedsides of many of both, I will tell you that there is no parallel. The fear and the absolute terror that strike the heart of the unbeliever as they know they are about to gasp their last breath, it's something you don't want to see and probably some of you have. And it's not easy for the believer but yet there is a a tremendous difference there is a peace there is a comfort but there is nonetheless that transition to the unknown where we go from this life that we know and see and the friends that we love to an unknown that we have no idea about and that is where we come to the ultimate trust and earthly knowledge of jesus christ These, beloved, are knowing and gaining Christ. 
And the ultimate expression of this is in verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the pinnacle of knowing Christ. In knowing Him in the resurrection. In attaining to that same resurrection. Now, the New American Standard Bible starts this out in order that. Some other versions are much more conditional and actually a little more reflective of the Greek text. Let me read to you the ESV. Instead of saying in order that, it says that by any means possible. By, if that by any means possible, I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. There's more of a longing there, isn't there? The, King James, the New King James Version actually reflects most of the other modern translations. And this is how the New King James reads. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's the question? Why is there this big condition? Why is it if by any means? Why is it that by any means possible? Is it that Paul thought he might not make it? Did he wonder if he was really going to be there? Did he wonder if he was really saved? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The condition is how he was going to die. Now it's a great revelation for all of us. Because none of us understand how we're going to die. Paul wondered, am I going to be crucified like my Savior? He's here writing the prison epistle from the horrors of the Roman prison. Am I going to languish in prison and die here? Am I going to go out and get released and get run over by a chariot? How am I going to die? I don't know. But if by any means, if by whatever means, whatever happens that I will attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's a certainty of the understanding of the resurrection, and this is the ultimate expression of knowing Jesus, isn't it? Isn't this the ultimate expression of losing to gain? When we are standing before our Savior, when we will see Him face to face, love that, that, that contemporary song, I can only imagine. I'm not sure about the theology of standing before him or falling on my knees or dancing before him, but I can tell you that it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing to be before Jesus and to see him and to, to see the holes in his hands, to know the hole in his side. That's, that's going to be knowing. That's going to be overwhelming knowledge. That's going to be beauty beyond anything we can ever understand. And thus we strive with all of our hearts every day of our lives, losing to gain, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And it brings us back to our title. What could you consider loss? Is there anything that you couldn't consider loss? Is there anything that is more precious than a knowledge of Jesus? Than embracing our glorious Savior? Than seeing Him in our salvation, in our suffering, and even in death? 
and then as we exhale our last breath upon this earth to inhale in his glorious presence. I can only imagine. And there's nothing that we shouldn't give for that glorious knowledge. May that be the focus of our hearts each and every day. It's all stuff. And it just doesn't matter. Only one thing matters. And that is our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. May we make him matter more and more every moment of every day.